The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Over you, simply find out if you are not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Today it's our Thursday show, so we're joined by Dr. Peter Hammond. Let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I am with you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. I always so much look forward to these shows. And before we start today's show, well, no, I'm going to give the title and let Peter take. Um, I hope he gets into this because Peter had a lot of involvement in South Sudan. He's the only person I've had on the show who was involved in creating a country. But there's conflict going on at the moment in Sudan. And so today's show is entitled The Real Story Behind the Coup and War in Sudan. So Peter, where would you like to start us off today with this topic? Sudan is back in the news. Of course, Sudan was once the largest country in Africa. And uh, thanks to movement that we had a key part in, it's no longer the largest country in Africa. It's now the third largest because one third of its territory broke away into an independent South Sudan back in 2011. And uh, we're very grateful for that. But uh, I've poured heart and soul into Sudan over the years. I've Since 1995, I conducted 27 missions in and around Sudan and about 14 different regions, during which time I was bombed, strafed, um, attacked in different ways, came under rocket and artillery fire and arrested. Um, in fact, I've got in my book, um, Sudan, Dead and Holocaust, uh, um, Sudan, Faith Under Fire and Sudan, I helped produce the film Sudan, Dead and Holocaust, but the book is Faith Under Fire and Sudan. I've, it's gone through three editions, um, the third edition being three times the size of the first edition. Well, the first edition of the book got me a death threat from the government of Sudan, I don't know if it's still on there, but last I checked, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs website of Sudan had an article entitled Why Churches in Sudan Are Not Bombed, which it blamed me, Peter Hammond, as the primary source of this fiction that the government of Sudan bombed churches and uh, mentioned me having pictures standing in alleged bomb holes, allegedly made by the Sudan Air Force and so on. And then it said, but Peter Hammond should expect to be bombed every time he comes to Sudan. He should expect to be shot on sight. His writings make him an enemy of the state. So that was published in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, so they don't particularly like me. Um, nevertheless, my book, Faith Under Fine Sudan, has done very, very well and uh, sold out so many times and it was uh, even being sold in Amazon for high amounts. So 
there was a real demand for it worldwide, and I'm glad for that. And now we've got a print on demand and ebooks. But Celan's back in the news, and I must say, I felt the blood rushing up to my head last week, and, uh, and a real itchy feet to want to dash out there and get involved in this um, uh, new conflict. Uh, but then um, it was almost like I could hear my wife talking to me, saying, Peter, don't be stupid. And uh, the fact is, my work in South Sudan was successful in large measure because the people I went amongst were Christians. The rebels in the South were Christian uh, forces fighting against the Islamic jihadist uh, dictatorship of al-Bashir. And they protected me and respected me because I was on their side. If I went to north of Sudan, I'm going into a place where they've got death threat fatwas against me and uh, where all sides are Muslim and there's no particularly good side. Um, and I'd probably be regarded as an enemy from whichever side. And as Margaret Thatcher says, if you're in the middle of the road, you could be run over from both sides. And uh, or in this case, shot at from both sides. Still, um, I maintain a lot of interest in Sudan. I've got contacts all over, so I've been sent pictures and stories and testimonies. And there's a lot of drama going on in Sudan. Fighting's erupted in the capital city. Now, Khartoum is a city of four million people, and they are without electricity, without water, without um, plumbing facilities, in many cases without food. And the situation is chaotic. I mean, imagine a city of four million people, a capital city, where aircraft, the Air Force is coming in and, and shooting in rockets and dropping bombs on targets within the city. There's civilian sensors that have been damaged. Their own Air Force is bombing them. What on earth is going on? Well, um, it seems to me, and we'll look at this as developed the story, um, where what we have here is probably another proxy war being developed between Russia and um, America. And the backstory behind this is that just a short while ago, a couple of months ago, the government of Sudan signed a naval agreement with Russia, with the Russian Federation, that the Russian Navy can set up a naval base on the Red Sea. Now, of course, Sudan is very strategically located geographically by the Horn of Africa and uh, on the Red Sea. It's mineral rich. There's lot, they've got oil, they've gold, they've got all sorts of very useful things uh, there. And Russia's been a major trading partner. And, uh, of course, there's a, a war going on against Russia from NATO and America's perspective. So Russia's got a trading partner in Sudan and now uh, a military agreement for setting up a naval base. And, hey, presto, would you believe it, by sheer coincidence, a coup d'etat occurs and war erupts in Sudan, putting all of those plans um, in question mark. So the story behind this is who's doing the fighting? Um, obviously, international backers are fighting for control of the strategic region, its sources and its future. But the two major protagonists involved in this is the Sudan army and a paramilitary group of effectively mercenary entrepreneurs called the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF. And the fighting has led to thousands of foreigners being stranded, diplomats and aid workers from the United Kingdom, the United States, France, Germany, Italy, Greece, Egypt, India, Saudi Arabia, Gulf states. They've closed the embassies and raced to evacuate the nationals. The Americans sent in SEAL Team 6, the naval uh, vessels were sent to the Red Sea to evacuate their people through Port Sudan. Convoys were escorted by military. The French came under fire while evacuating the people. India sent special uh, aircraft to evacuate the people. 
all over the world, governments have scrambled to evacuate the nationals, which indicates they know something that they do not believe that this is a short-term uh, upheaval or little coup, but this is heading into a real war where their nationals will not be safe. Britain demanded all their people leave the country, although they've left a few thousand citizens behind. But nevertheless, um, so far, according to the World Health Organization, over 500 people have already been killed officially and over 4,000 wounded. It's got to be a lot more than that because news travels slowly. And right now, cell phones aren't operating in most of Khartoum or Sudan. It seems that a lot of things are, are cut down. Um, cell phone towers have either been seized or switched off. Whatever the reason is, people can't seem to be communicating like they normally are. And so it's quite bizarre when you get, for example, the American embassy saying, we've closed the embassy and we've evacuated our personnel and any American citizens in a country that need to be evacuated must contact us. How on earth do you contact the American embassy when they've closed the embassy down and evacuated their staff? This is something quite bizarre. You saw it in Afghanistan. Instead of first evacuating the civilians and then closing the embassy and evacuating the diplomatic staff, they get it the wrong way around. They first evacuate the embassy staff and then they say they'll evacuate their citizens. I don't see how the citizens can possibly contact the embassy if the embassy is closed and the personnel have been evacuated first. But this seems to be something done by many countries. So uh, last week they organized a 72-hour ceasefire to enable foreigners to evacuate. And uh, the British families caught up in the fighting, accused the, US government, the UK government of abandoning them. The Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the Foreign Office assured them that talks were underway to bring them home. Now, I don't think that would encourage me. To hear that politicians are having talks to bring you home does not sound very concrete or very reassuring. But after the truce was agreed on, the British evacuated, airlifted 536 citizens to safety. And the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, urged British nationals who might be hesitant or weighing up the options, make your way to Wadi Sedina, where there's planes and capacity in place to get them out. Now, how are you meant to get to Wadi Sedina? It's not like come to your embassy in Khartoum, we'll get you out. It's not like come to the airport in Khartoum, get you out. That's no longer an option. You've got to find some oasis tucked away out there. Um, and how you get there is your own problem. And uh, if you get there, we'll get you out. But now they've said anyone who's still in there has missed the boat. The last plane has flown out. And uh, according to Alicia Kerens of the Common Foreign Affairs Committee, she said that there's upwards of 40 of 4,000 British citizens waiting to be evacuated. Um, but in the end, Britain actually only evacuated 2,000. So you wonder what happened to the others. According to this Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, British citizens on the ground are living in abject fear with little food, little water left, and some have even re resorted to killing their pets and eating them uh, out of fear of starvation. So the situation is extremely dire. Now, tensions have been building for months between the Sudan army and their allies, the Rapid Support Forces, which is basically a bunch of entrepreneur mercenary criminals uh, who have uh, been a uh, independent kind of militia in Sudan, but actually under the uh, former president. So the friction, uh, what happened was four years ago, there was a coup d'etat, a popular uprising People were protesting in the streets. There was a lot of anger. 
primarily because the subsidy on bread um, was abolished. And that was the last straw. And the people rose up in huge opposition. And the dictator, Omar al-Bashir, who'd been in power for 30 years, he came to power through a coup d'etat in 1989. He ruled for almost 30 years. But in uh, 2018, that was the end of it, uh, when they dropped the subsidies, almost like, like the French rights over Macron uh, trying to change the pensions law. And it, it just seemed to have been the final straw for the people of Sudan. And the end result was that the army and the militia, the rapid support forces, united together to overthrow the dictator that they were sworn to support. And uh, that popular uprising led to some very promising developments in the next couple of years, from 2018 to 2021. We saw freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion restored. They abolished flogging of, of women they for not adhering to the hijiba uh, uh, codes and all that, and uh, wearing the, the sort of black tent that you mentioned, the veil. And they abolished uh, execution for converts. If a Muslim converted to Christianity, for example, they had the death penalty before under Omar al-Bashir's jihad Sharia law. And uh, they were talking about freedom of the press and freedom of conscience, unheard of before. But in 2021, uh, there was a sudden change where the civilian section was ousted from the um, transitional government and the military seized full control. And uh, that, of course, was disturbing in 2021. But even then, the military pledged themselves to a transition to civilian rule sometime in the future. Now, uh, something happened just recently after the government, which means the military, signed a, a treaty with the Russian Federation that their navy can have a base on the Red Sea. Uh, suddenly, tensions have arisen between the rapid support forces, mercenary militia, and uh, the head of Sudan's ruling council, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, who's the head of the military, and now they're fighting one another. So these previous allies who together overthrew the previous dictator are now fighting one another. And it's, it's quite a confusing mess because both sides in this war have been getting aid and support from Russia and both sides in this war have been getting aid and support from the United States. So who's backing who and who's representing who is not crystal clear just yet. But uh, what we are seeing is um, the popular uprising uh, of four years ago, and this war is coming about on the fourth anniversary of overthrowing al-Bashir, uh, the dictator of Sudan. Al-Bashir is wanted for genocide, corruption, all sorts of things. Even the International Court of Justice, the ICC, uh, wants al-Bashir, and the government of Sudan hasn't quite handed him over yet, but they were talking about it. Well, al-Bashir has now escaped in the chaos and confusion and uh, the war that's broken out. So al-Bashir never got handed over to the Hague Court of Justice for the ICC. And uh, now it seems he's at large and we don't know where that's going to go. Uh, but this rapidly escalating conflict is embroiling this country of 46 million people. Um, they thought they'd come out of decades of Islamic dictatorship and oppressive Sharia law and internal conflict and civil war and the economic isolation sanctions they endured under al-Bashir because he was supporting international terrorists like al-Qaeda and uh, uh, 
I almost said Obama, but we mean Osama bin Laden. Uh, there's a difference. And uh, this renewed conflict, which is rapidly escalating, seems to be destroying all those hopes for peace and freedom that the decades of disastrous war and the economic um, isolation under sanctions and the oppressive Sharia law, that that was in the past and that they had actually hope for real freedom and peace in the future. But right now, the whole area is being destabilized and it is believed that America is playing a key role in what we are seeing right now is a proxy war between the United States and Russia. And uh, <clears throat> it's quite distressing for those of us who've invested uh, decades and vast amounts of energy and effort into helping these people. I've conducted over 1,200 meetings and services in Sudan over recent years, and we've smuggled in and distributed hundreds of thousands of Bibles and Christian books, planted all kinds of wells and um, boreholes in the country. Uh, I've been involved in not only starting and equipping about 100 bush schools with school textbooks, but we've supplied hundreds of thousands of Bibles to 200 schools, 250 schools in New Mountains, taken medical teams, uh, trained their medics, trained their chaplains, uh, trained teachers, and to see all this destabilized is quite disturbing. Well, what has happened is Britain and America were supporting the previous government, but suspended something like $700 million in aid when they had a coup back in 2021. Well, energy-rich powers like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have also been shaping events and they've been investing and getting involved in what's going on in Sudan. And the Gulf states are pursuing investments in agriculture. Sudan's got huge potential there. And of course, they've got minerals and their ports on the Red Sea coast is very strategic, considering 10% of the world's naval traffic uh, goes between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean through Suez Canal and the Red Sea. So there's a very strategic uh, choke point. And uh, Russia has been wanting to set up a naval base in the Red Sea for some time. And some United Arab Emirates companies have been signing up to invest. There's even a United Arab Emirates airline agreeing with a Sudan partner to create a new airline, low-cost airline based in Khartoum. So Buhan, the um, head of the government, uh, the general in charge of the army, and Hemeti um, Dogolo, who's head of the Rapid Support Forces, uh, this mercenary group of entrepreneur, kind of like mafia um, militia, uh, they both have very close ties with Saudi Arabia and with Yemen. Now, Saudi Arabia and Yemen are very luxurious, I should say, Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates. They have lots of money, but they don't have citizens willing to fight. So they need to hire mercenaries to do the fighting for them. And Sudan, the Sudan army and uh, the rapid support forces under Hemeti have sold their troops and have loaned their troops out to fight for Saudi Arabia. So tens of thousands of Sudanese, both regular Sudanese army and the rapid support forces, mercenaries, are patrolling Sudan's border, Saudi Arabia's border, I should say, with Yemen and involved in fighting in Yemen in what is Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen and United Arab Emirates as well. So both sides in the Sudan conflict have been serving as providers of mercenaries and soldiers 
for Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Now, Egypt itself, which is its northern neighbor, is under military general President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who overthrew the Muslim Brotherhood dictator who was oppressing the country before him. And uh, they want stability. They obviously don't want uh, rabid Islamist Sharia law fanatics on their border either. So it seems that uh, President Sisi of Egypt is more allied with the government of today and trying to see that it does not deteriorate. Um, I'm not too sure what the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia would like, uh, but they are major players in this too. And just recently, we've seen China and uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran form some kind of alliance. So the situation right now is that the army has branded the Rapid Support Forces as a rebel force and demanded its dissolution, uh, whereas the Rapid Support Forces have called Burhan and the military around the country criminals and blamed them for visiting destruction of country. Hard to know who started this conflict uh, because both are blaming one another. The Sudan army has, of course, superior resources because they've got air power, they have an air force. The Rapid Support Forces does not have an air force. They have 100,000 men and 10,000 vehicles. It's actually quite funny. Uh, their vehicles that make the Rapid Support Forces are all uh, land cruisers or Toyota buckies or pickup trucks, which they've stolen mostly from non-governmental organizations and UN people all over North Africa. And uh, the Rapid Support Forces have been very innovative in their entrepreneurial mercenary activities. They also control the gold mines in the north of Darfur, and it seems they are funding a lot of their activities with those gold mines. Uh, for example, Dubai in the United Arab Emirates wants lots of gold. They're one of the major gold uh, trading countries, and their shops are filled with gold products, products you could never imagine would be gold, made of pure gold, and way beyond bracelets and necklaces and rings, vast amounts of things in gold. And so Dubai is getting their gold from um, the rapid support forces, the mercenary militia, that's one of the biggest military forces in Sudan. But now, how is the Sudan army dealing with this? Well, they've deployed the air force to literally bomb the rapid support forces even when they are in the city. So the destruction of buildings from aerial assaults is being done entirely by the Sudan army. But maybe that, or should we say air force, but why are they doing that? it would seem that the uh, rapid support forces uh, who came to prominence from the war in Darfur, in fact, both generals on both sides of this war, uh, first came to prominence through the Darfur war in Western Sudan, where Muslim um, insurgents were fighting against the Muslim government. And so what you basically have in Darfur is black Muslims were fighting against the Arab Muslims of the government of Sudan. And it was an Islam on Islam conflict, but there's a bit of a racial link to it. Now, in came uh, Dagolo, who's also known as Hemeti, and Dagolo, head of the Rapid Support Forces, uh, he um, was leader of the notorious Janjaweed Forces, which is a kind of Mujahideen bunch of jihadists who did a lot of human rights violations, a lot of atrocities, uh, but they were formalized into paramilitary forces called the Border Intelligence Units under Omar al-Bashir, the previous dictator. 
and uh, he used to refer to Dagolo and his rapid support forces as his protectors. Well, they turned against the dictatorship of al-Bashir, and um, even though they had opened fire on anti-Bashir protesters, pro-democracy protesters, killing over 118 people in just one massacre in the streets using hard rounds, solid rounds for uh, people protesting peacefully in the street. So they were wanted as war criminals as well. But um, this um, Dagolo, who ran the rapid support forces of, uh, which was directly under the military intelligence services and answerable only to the dictator al-Bashir as president of the country, uh, they somewhere along the line decided to join the people and to turn against their government and overthrow the dictator Omar al-Bashir along with the army. So uh, the rapid support forces have a lot of people on the ground, 100,000 men and 10,000 vehicles liberated from NGOs. And uh, that's a lot of vehicles. But they don't have any air force. They do have anti-aircraft guns. And uh, that doesn't help much when you've got a supersonic jets swooping down you to drop bombs and missiles. But they are um, making a stand. And rapid support forces seem to have um, a lot of support from Russia. They are linked with a backed rogue general in Libya. And they've got a large amount of contact, it would seem, um, with Russia. But then the Russian government's also involved. We're not too sure which of these two are receiving American support and which are receiving mostly Russian support, because it seems that both are backing both sides. But somewhere along the line, this has broken out into an open proxy war. And I've got contacts and they've sent me videos where they're literally saying on TikTok and whatever else, this is a proxy war. This is America and Russia getting involved. Well, um, there was a uh, American CIA operative who had been 26 years in the uh, uh, in the service and agency, who was interviewed on uh, Kerry Iverson's show uh, sometime last week, and he was very outspokenly straight and said, "This is plainly a um, proxy war. This coup has been." staged by um, the CIA. The CIA has more uh, personnel in the um, uh, Khartoum embassy in, in Sudan than even have in Kiev, Ukraine, which is a major operational area for them. And so he stated on the Kim Everson show, the coup in Sudan is all the hallmarks of a CIA operation, especially coming so soon after the agreement for Russia to set up a naval base on the Red Sea. And that the goal here is not so much getting the strategic minerals and contacts of Sudan for America. America doesn't really need it, but to stop Russia getting it. So the main goal here is to prevent Russia from developing its relationship and its trading partner uh, and the naval base agreement with Sudan. So the situation has also been aggravated when the CNN released pictures of satellite imagery claiming that the Wagner Russian mercenary force that work in Libya is linked with uh, Sudan. And uh, they showed satellite imagery with, with interpretations of these are armored vehicles uh, and uh, these are mine-resistant, ambush-protected armored vehicles in the picture. And personal information on the uh, on the square, and this is all from Libya. Well, 
who could have possibly had access to satellite images and why was it leaked to CNN? Well, obviously, this is part of the information war, propaganda war, and uh, the, the American military or foreign affairs must have passed this on to CNN to show these satellite images. So this just confirms the fact that we're probably dealing with a uh, proxy war and now there's propaganda out there that I've seen uh, blaming Russia for the war, but of course there's a lot of others blaming America for the war. And there's Sudanese people blaming both America and Russia for the war, saying this is like the Cold War and we've been used as proxies uh, in a new Cold War. And, well, it's not very cold. It's pretty hot for the people on the ground. Sudan is at a geographically critical region. It borders Egypt and Libya to the north and Ethiopian Eritrea and the Horn of Africa to the east. And uh, they also border, of course, Chad and Central African Republic. It's a very strategic uh, location, and it has strategic minerals, not just gold and uh, oil, as there's a lot of oil there, uh, but also the Nile River Basin. The White and Blue Nile Rivers merged to form the main Nile at Khartoum. Khartoum is a city built between these two rivers, the Blue Nile and the White Nile. And Sudan is home to 60% of the Nile River Basin. Now, safe management of the Nile's water is crucial for the stability of the region. The northern neighbor, Egypt, is dependent on 90% of Nile River water for its water supply. And while Ethiopia to the east is looking to double the country's electricity generation through construction of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, hydroelectric uh, plant, uh, that is threatening Egypt's survival. So the major bone of contention Ethiopia has been filling their dam 2020-2021 without any agreement with Egypt. And Egypt has protested even to the UN Security Council that this will result in war. The, the whole of Egypt is so depends on Nile, but the Nile starts up in Ethiopia and in Uganda and flows through South Sudan. Without stability in Sudan, um, who knows what could happen with the Nile River. And if the people in Egypt don't get 90% of, uh, of the water in the Nile coming through them without being dammed up first in either Sudan or Ethiopia, uh, they die agriculturally in every way. They, Egypt cannot survive without the Nile River. There are people warning that many of the wars of the 21st century are going to be over water. And Egypt said they will go to war with Ethiopia if they block up the Nile. They need that water. Well, Sudan's a key part of this whole three-nation agreement uh, for how to control the Nile water. So that's also part of the strategy. And then, of course, as far as the naval importance of the Red Sea goes, 10% of the global sea trade passes through the Suez Canal and uh, the Red Sea, linking the Asian and European markets. So that's part of it. And then there's the mineral resources, large amounts of major oil reserves in Sudan, not to mention 80% of the world's gum Arabic, which is a major component in food additives, paints, and cosmetics. Not quite as glamorous, but also important, and gold. Now, and these strategic minerals are all uh, sought after by Russia and China, and of course, America would like to deprive them of it under their global sanctions. So, with the involvement of the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, uh, we are seeing the potential for a major uh, regional conflict. This war can easily spill over. It's already spilled over into Chad, 
because um, Sudan has invaded Chad and is involved very much in the war in Chad. A lot of the rapid support forces are involved in the war in, Sudan, in Chad. When the uh, African Union and the UN pulled out of Chad, uh, rapid support forces moved exactly into those very bases that they'd evacuated. And not only that, but there's the they've really spilled over into the war in Yemen. Sudan forces are involved in the war in Chad, they're involved in the war in Yemen as proxies for United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. So could this war spill over even further into South Sudan, Ethiopia, Central African Republic, Zaire, Congo? Uh, yes, easily. The whole region is in danger of, of this war getting out of control. Libya uh, is also in danger because there's a really link between the Wagner group in Libya and uh, what's going on in Sudan. So what we are seeing is, as a result of the strategic and economic importance of Sudan, they've attracted competing international partners, the Gulf oil states like Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates, Russia and the United States. And right now we are seeing developing in Sudan some humanitarian disaster and crisis. And it would seem that it's a major part of the ongoing war between the West as in America, NATO and Russia. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Sorry, um, I was just noting these uh, things down. It's uh, it, it's a fascinating um, development. But when you look at the history, it's it's um, what was that comment that you were told about um, uh, something to do with coups at American embassies, uh, Peter? Can you give us the history of oh. that, please? Yes, um, back when I was a, a guest of. Um, Jonas Savimbi of UNITA in Angola, talking about 1980s, we are having a breakfast together, and Jonas Savimbi asked, why hasn't there been a revolution in America for over 200 years? And of course, the American guests that brought them all pretty puzzled, and we all uh, expressed what we didn't know. And Jonas Savimbi responded, there's no American embassy in America. Why has it not been a revolution in America for over 200 years? They don't have an American embassy. Well, it's that's a bit of a joke in Africa that um, American embassies are hotbeds of revolution. In fact, the American embassy in South Africa set up a reading room in Soweto, where the revolution began in 1976. They had a reading room, but when you talk about a reading room, what do you think? It's meant to be a cultural um, additive, some cultural enrichment from the American embassy. So they called it an, part of the embassy. It was part of American sovereign territory, but set up in a township where a lot of black people have millions lived. But the books they had there, it wasn't about uh, Thomas Jefferson and uh, Madison and Washington. No, the books there were about Vladimir Lenin and Karl Marx, Robespierre, Voltaire, all revolutionary type books, liberation theology. And the videos that dad were back then was uh, a video cassettes. And they were showing uh, videos. These were all uh, Latin American revolutionary Cuban type of things. The American embassy was sponsoring revolution. It was like coming and get a training in how to make petrol bombs and the psychology behind revolution. Uh, it was very subversive, and this was well exposed by Ada Parker, a journalist for the Citizen newspaper at the time, on the subversive nature of the U.S. reading room in Soweto. That's just one of many examples. Many of the revolutions all over the world have been documented to have been organized by the U.S. Embassy. Most recently, Kiev in Ukraine. Very, very 
um, heavily involved. In fact, uh, the Under Secretary of State for the State Department, uh, New Newland, is, is it? I think she, her real name is Noodleman. Yeah, but, um, Victoria Newland. Uh, she yeah. was sorry. Vic Victoria Newland. Victoria Newland, yes, but uh, I think the original name was Noodleman. Anyway, um, she uh, was heavily involved in funding, as in billions of dollars, into setting up opposition parties and setting up um, alternative media uh, in Ukraine who all were working for the overthrow of the um, elected government of Sudan and bring in a client state, one of the most corrupt governments on the planet uh, in Ukraine, and starting the war against the Russian-speaking people of the Donbass, which started in 2014 when they abolished Russian as the language of education in schools. And areas like uh, Donbass region, uh, where 90-something percent of the population were home language Russian, suddenly found that they were no longer allowed to have their children taught in the home language. And of course, that started conflict. And America has been behind the conflict since 2014 in Ukraine. And the State Department and the embassy played a key role in the Mayan revolution in uh, Kiev 2014. But that's just one of many. It's been documented that so many revolutions around the world, the U.S. Embassy played a key role. And I know that's true for South Africa. And I know that's true for Rhodesia. The U.S. played a very subversive role. Another quote from Jonas Savimbi to me, it is better to be America's enemy than America's friend. If you're America's enemy, you will probably be bought. But if you're America's friend, you will certainly be sold. And that was said without bitterness by a man who admired America, at least America in history, and the founding fathers of America and American Constitution. But he recognized that the U.S. State Department was treacherous. And I've got books on my shelves like Ally Betrayed, Nationalist China, Ally Betrayed Nicaragua, um, and uh, others. There's so many cases where the U.S. have betrayed their allies. And, of course, um, then you can think of the American betrayal of their own people, not just that Afghanistan recently, but um, the missing in action prisoners of war. I, I met um, uh, Captain Red McDaniels, who um, was in charge of the MIA prison of war movements in America. He spent six years as a, a prisoner of war in the Hanoi Hilton, so-called the concentration camp of the uh, North uh, Vietnamese and uh, he documented in books such as Kiss the Boys Goodbye how America has a track record of betraying its own soldiers, its own prisoners of war, mis missing in actions and so on, from the First World War all the way through the Second World War and the Korean War uh, to the Vietnam War and, of course, since as well. In the First World War, America left over 10,000 of its soldiers who'd gone in the intervention into Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution. They left them behind, they betrayed them. The ones who came in at Moments, the ones that came in uh, on the uh, Vladivostok side, and uh, they betrayed them in the hands of the Bolsheviks, and the Bolsheviks kept them, and they stayed there for years and died in the Arctic hellholes of the Gulag Archipelago. And the Korean War, thousands of American soldiers who were prisoners of war on the Chinese side um, and North Korean side, uh, many of which were even taken to the Soviet Union for interrogations, particularly the pilots, um, were abandoned and betrayed for decades again and again after the Vietnam War. So Captain Red McDaniels, an American patriot, he documented how uh, the American government's got a track record of betraying its own soldiers, not just betraying its allies. So the situation is pretty serious, and having poured heart and soul into Sudan for many years, it's tragic to see this country 
in this plight. Now, listeners may recall there's a couple of major films that have been made on Sudan that may be interesting for you to revisit. One is Charlton Heston's excellent film, Khartoum. That's on General Charles Gordon, the uh, British governor who um, brought freedom and ended the slavery, brought freedom to the people of Sudan, who died betrayed by the British government, abandoned by the British government as he was um, meant to uh, go to Khartoum and the Mahdi, the uh, Messianic military messiah of the Muslims, rose to power and the Mahdi's forces um, attacked Khartoum and killed everybody, massacred the entire population, men, women and children, including, of course, the British General Charles Gordon, which uh, led to Queen Victoria sending a message of rebuke to her prime minister and publicly uh, rebuking him for abandoning General Gordon. And that led to Britain having to mobilize a massive force down the Nile River, which led to the Battle of Omdurman, where uh, Lord Kitchener, who became Kitchener of, of Khartoum as a result, um, had to reassert British honor by avenging the death of General Gordon, arguably Britain's most honored and respected general of the uh, Victorian era. General Charles Gordon had, of course, also been Commandant General of the Cape in the Castle of Good Hope, and he's the one who did the archaeological research that discovered the tomb that we as Protestants go to, the Garden Tomb in Jerusalem. For many years they called it Gordon's Tomb, of course, it's, it's our Lord's Tomb, but Gordon's the one who identified it from archaeological research and, and Bible study. And they also spoke about Gordon's Calvary. Well, the Calvary we go to is what General Charles Gordon identified. So if you want to get a bit of a feel of Sudan and how Britain got involved, seeing Khartoum would help. There's also the Four Feathers film. The older one is better than the new one, which gives a bit of a feel of Sudan. Uh, from a more amusing perspective, there was the comedy uh, done by Kirk Douglas, um, not Kirk Douglas, Michael Douglas, uh, The Jewel of the Nile, which is set in Sudan, although they don't use the name Sudan, but it's plainly that's where it's meant to be based. Sudan's been important in British history. It's important even in South African history. But um, uh, our links to Sudan, especially for our mission, it's been the focus of most of frontline fellowships missionary work in recent decades. So to see this country torn apart again when there was such promise for peace and freedom in the future is very distressing. But it seems that if, if uh, we had... Ronald Reagan back today, and he's making a speech about the evil empire. I think he'd now identify the evil empire not as coming from the Kremlin, but coming from Washington, D.C. Because it now seems the United States of America is the evil empire, exporting LGBTQ perversion, gender confusion, and revolution around the world. I saw an intriguing a report just recently uh, from Britain, uh, where the head of the British MI6, head of British MI6, made the statement that it's so important to be involved in the war in Ukraine because uh, the differences between the democracies of the West and Russia couldn't be more clear. And he said um, that uh, we're fighting in Ukraine for our values, none more important than the LGBTQ uh, agenda. Now, that's intriguing that the head of MI6 in Britain could think the one thing that Putin is our values, primary amongst it is our standing for LGBTQ rights, to quote him. Now, to go to the other side, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church made a statement recently that 
any country that does not have gay pride marches will find themselves targeted by a revolution by America. So um, I think that's also part of it. Sudan does not have the rainbow flag flying over it yet. And uh, Sudan has the death penalty for uh, perverts. So, and they certainly don't have gay pride marches. So they're obviously a good target for a revolution. Democracy needs to come to you. And uh, all over Africa, there's people have cartoons and jokes about, um, you know, if oil is discovered, hide it. Uh, because next thing, democracy will come to you. And then you see a cruise missile with an American flag on it. Um, and that uh, people um, are literally covering up the oil discovered that discovered in their land because they suddenly realize, oh, if, if we discover oil here, America will bring democracy to us. And here comes a cruise missile. So these are the jokes, but they're not very funny that you're hearing around Africa. Yes, indeed. Well, Peter, we've got a few minutes left, and I'm going to throw a few different bits and pieces in here, sort of quick um, little points that kind of relate to today. Uh, I grabbed my book, The Synagogue of Satan, because you were talking about what really goes on behind the scenes, and I was looking for my Victor Ostrovsky uh, material that I included in the book. Of course, he was a former Mossad agent, but he bravely um, expose the sort of things that they get up to. And here are some of the sort of things that they get up to. On October the 23rd of 1983, in Beirut, the United States Marine Barracks is blasted to shreds by a truckload of explosives resulting in the deaths of 241 servicemen. In his book, By Way of Deception, former Mossad agent Viktor Ostrovsky confirms Israel had advanced knowledge of the attack, yet did not bother to warn the Americans. He states... The general attitude at Mossad about the Americans was, as far as the Yanks go, we are not here to protect them. Next, we've got, in 1984, the Mossad run into a problem. They're training both the Sri Lankan Special Forces and the Tamil Tiger Rebels from Sri Lanka at the same Mossad training school in Kfar Sirkin in Israel. This is after selling both sides military courses military training courses. It is touch and go, but the Mossad managed to keep both sides apart in their three weeks at this training camp, and both factions leave to return to Sri Lanka, none the wiser that their enemy was being trained in the same camp by the same organisation. And then the last one I've got for you is uh, much closer to home, Peter. Uh, former Mossad agent Viktor Ostrovsky releases another book entitled The Other Side of Deception. Now, what I just quoted from was from his first book, By Way of Deception. They're both worth getting. So this is from the second book, The Other Side of Deception, in which he reveals the following on page 241. Yuri was on a calling off period from the United States. What is the Mossad doing giving humanitarian assistance to blacks in Soweto? I remember, this is Victor Ostrovsky remembers asking Yuri. There was no logic to it, no short-term political gain, which was the way the Mossad operated, or any visible monetary advantage. Do you remember Nes Siona? said Yuri. His question sent shivers up my spine. I nodded. This is very much the same. We're testing both new infectious diseases and new medication that can't be tested on humans in Israel for several of the Israeli medicine manufacturers. This will tell them whether they're on the right track, saving them millions in research. 
What do you think about all this? I had to ask. It's not my job to think about it, Yuri replied. And the year for that is 1994. So nearly 30 years ago, that was what was going on. Uh, Peter, any comments on any of those things I just mentioned? Yeah, we do find their fingerprints all over the place. It is extraordinary. And, um, you know, you can see it with old Jeffrey Epstein and Con, who is obviously an asset of both Mossad and the CIA, who is involved in um, getting top leaders involved in compromising positions and having something on them that could control them so that they would indulge their worst vices and give them whatever they wanted in terms of sexual deviancy and perversion, but film it and have uh, blackmail material to be able to manipulate. So that's by way of deception. And Ghislaine Maxwell's father was called Mossad super spy. And uh, uh, he, in fact, controlled, I believe, a major British uh, daily newspaper as well. And uh, is meant to have committed suicide and disappeared over the boat when he was exposed. But uh, maybe he's still alive in Israel, uh, living under assumed name, it is believed. Still, the Jeffrey Epstein's and Robert Maxwell's of the world are just some who've come to light. And we can see that there's a lot going on behind the scenes, manipulating our governments. When you understand that and the Sabbatean cult behind it, the satanic Illuminati uh, type movements of, of real Satan worshipping perversion evil, then you can understand so much of what goes on in the world and the seemingly irrational behaviors and policies of our governments. It only makes sense when you understand that behind the scenes there are manipulative agencies who are actually Sabbateans, who are devil-worshipping perverts as the Sabbatean uh, religion that was developed from 1666 on, and the Illuminati, which was launched on the 1st of May, 1776, uh, which is why we have May Day as a major occultic and communist uh, public holiday. So I think the way of deception and the other side of deception are giving us insights to make sense of the apparent random chaos that's coming our way in the media. It's presented as, you know, government's just making mistakes and doing some stupid things. But to do this, to do a stupid thing once, well, you know, we're all human. We all can make mistakes. But if you do it twice, you're stupid more than that. You do it. 10, 15, 20, 100 times, you've got a hidden agenda. So if the US State Department and the British Foreign Office were just stupid, they'd do the right thing occasionally by a sheer accident. But the fact that they so consistently betray their allies and um, and appease their enemies means that they are actually uh, using deception. They are, as the Sabbateans say, they are, uh, everything they espouse is the opposite of what they actually hold to. And you can only tell what they really mean by seeing what they do, because they will, whatever they say is to deceive and to cover up what the real intentions are. And the real intentions are to destroy Western Christian civilization. And you think in Sudan, it was just freedom was coming out and, and the church is growing tremendously in Sudan. And, and now uh, the hopes of the people being so cruelly dashed uh, at this particular time, you can see a hidden hand here this is extremely disturbing, and plainly there's some pretty evil people behind the scenes trying to destabilize wherever there's any kind of chance of peace and progress and growth of Christianity, and then they bring war there. And this has happened how many times before in the 20th century? So back to you, Andrew. 
Thank you, Peter. I just want to close off with um, last week we did uh, the show, The Real Story Behind the Biblical and Historical Roots of the Coronation, which I found fascinating, as I do all of Peter's presentations. We've since had the coronation, and I've emailed a couple of things over to Peter, and we don't know if they're real or not. The first one was um, a someone looks like the Grim Reaper, but uh, you suddenly see him in the coronation video and uh, someone's clipped it out and put it on Rumble. That's where I saw it. Anyway, I got it off before it's news.com. Um, and, you know, is this fake or what have you? And you look down the comments and someone says, look, here's the original link. And it's something like two hours and four minutes in. You can find it in there. But of course, these days you could... Um, someone could sample my voice for only a few seconds. They could phone Peter up and Peter would think it was me. Because AI has been doing stuff like that. You remember what Dr. Lorraine Day said earlier in the week. This is shocking, Peter. But there's been cases where um, basically some mother has had a um, phone call from someone saying that they've got their daughter and they're going to, you know, do whatever to her unless she pays X amount of money. And they put the daughter on the phone. It's the daughter's voice because they've hacked the daughter's voice and they only need a few seconds of it for AI to, to make that voice sound like it is actually the daughter. So this is the sort of depravity that our sick society has descended into. Um, so when you see things like that, like this, it's you're not sure if it's true or not. But the other thing I wanted to mention is this article I got off rents.com because... Um, I don't believe we've mentioned um, Jeff Rents on this program before, but he does carry this show every week as he carries the other weekday shows, so we thank him for that. And he's put up an article on May the 7th. It says, King Lizard and the Lizard people sure do like the number six. The coronation took place six months, six weeks and six days from the day of the Queen Lizard funeral. It was also on the 6th of May. The King Lizard Paedophile Network did their strange trance walk through, the, through a church with church hymns going, even though they are satanic lizard people. They sure like that number six. Here is a video and commentary about the coronation and devil worship. And remember, word is that there was a dark coronation held in secret before the public version. Well, we know that Prince William and Kate were running late for some strange reason, but obviously all this, uh, when you read things like that, we don't have any evidence. There is a video here, actually, 3 minutes 59 seconds. So if you want to look at it and make up your own mind, just go to rents.com and look for the article King Lizard and the Lizard People Sure Do Like the Number 6, and you will find that if you scroll down the central column on the home page so anyway uh any comments on that peter before we go yeah that that's extremely hard to to know when because of the amount of deception you know that the camera doesn't lie is no longer true the camera does lie it can easily lie i mean we don't actually believe that star wars is about a real long long ago in a galaxy far far away uh, that was made in a studio in california so a lot of things can be faked, and so we do need to be always careful and cautious. We know that whatever the mainstream media is saying to you is probably a distraction from the real news that they're ignoring you, uh, and uh, we need to be alert. We need to understand the times. We need to be aware of being deceived, but it's, it's vital that we don't believe the mainstream narrative, which is continually, if it isn't blatant uh, untruth, it's at least a distraction from more important things. And... Uh, 
if anyone wants to see our research and, and, and details on Sudan, I've written extensively on Sudan. I've worked there for years. And uh, they can go on to www.frontlinemissionsa.org to see the Frontline website. We've got a lot on Sudan and can get books like Faith Under Fire in Sudan or the video Sudan in the Holocaust uh, dealing with it. And my personal email is peter at frontline.org.za. Peter at frontline.org.za. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And that email address, along with the website and many other of Peter's websites, will be available in the post for this show at achshow.com. So I want to thank Peter so much for joining us again for a show entitled The Real Story Behind the Coup and War in Sudan. Peter and I will be back with you at the same time next week. I will, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. And bye for now.